great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. There is no one higher, no one greater. You are the only causer, the only judge, the only sustainer. We plead with you to let us encounter you in such a way that we would fear. And as we fear that we would not turn, we are needy. You are our source. So come for the sake of your name and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Have a seat. The preacher in Ecclesiastes said, There is more gain in wisdom than there is in folly. Just as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person actually has eyes in his head, whereas the fool walks in darkness. Where are you today? Are you drawn to the darkness? Are you one who hates the light and does not come to the light lest your deeds would be exposed? God knows. God knows. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, whereas the foolish man's heart is to the left. Where do you spend your time? Where are your thoughts? Do you fear God? The fear of the Lord, Solomon tells us, is the beginning of wisdom. It's the fountainhead, the generator of right living. Paul said that one of the condemnable problems of the peoples and the nations and in our neighborhoods is that there is no fear of God before their eyes. They don't fear And that is a problem. In contrast, the psalmist says, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Calling his followers to anticipate persecution, Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot fear kill the soul, but rather fear him. Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Do you fear that God? If we're supposed to fear him, this must mean that when Paul says to Timothy, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-discipline, that that he must not be talking there about the kind of fear that every believer is supposed to have. There's different kinds of fear. Certain fears push us away, whereas other fears compel us to get closer. We fear the devastating effects of fire, and yet, with care, we're not afraid to use a stove or enjoy a fire. We fear drowning, and yet we're still willing to drink, we're still willing to go ice fishing, some of us, and we're still willing to swim. 
There are certain fears that move us to flee, yet there are other fears that move us to follow. Certain fears that are not equal to terror and yet still move us to tremble at what could happen if we don't respect the object rightfully. Abraham had a certain kind of fear. After following God for three decades, after hearing through Isaac, will your name be established, God tested him, saying, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him on the mountain. And Abraham was willing to do so. But at the very moment that he had the knife raised, before it plunged in sacrificial judgment against his son, the angel of the Lord cried out and said this, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. Why? For I know that you fear me. Abraham had followed God for multiple decades. He had grown and experienced the bigness of God, the powerfulness of God, the faithfulness of God. And and in this moment, a fear was generated that overflowed in an obedience. Even in a context that seemed to go against God's revealed purpose. Or consider Exodus 20, Mount Sinai a mountain filled with fire and clouds and thick darkness, smoke. The people come trembling to Moses. They say, you, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let the Lord speak to us lest we die. And Moses says to them, don't fear. Don't fear For God has come to test you in order that the fear of him might be in you so that you will not sin. In this passage, the two kinds of fear are there. Don't fear in a way that makes you to flee God, but rather fear him in a way that compels you deeper in and higher up. God's revealed purpose in the Old Covenant was that they would fear Him so that they would not sin. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, And now what does the Lord your God require of you? But that you would fear Him, that you would walk in His ways, that you would love Him, that you would serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. That you would fear God. And yet the sad reality, as we all know, we've got a very thick Old Testament. The sad reality is that Israel as a nation did not fear God. And it resulted in their destruction. Rather than following the Lord, they followed the course of the power of this age. And it ruined them. But God promised through Jeremiah that a new covenant would come. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, says the Lord, so that I will not stop doing good to you. I will put the fear of me in your hearts so that you will never, never turn from me. That is a promise worth holding on to. That's a promise that can get you out of bed in the morning and that can even let you rest at night. The tenacious fear giving grace of God. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, 
And I want us to focus on the last two verses of this book. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. I considered stopping my sermon right here and just giving us 25 minutes to reflect. And yet I know that faith comes by hearing and so I'm going to talk more. The end of the matter all has been heard. What's the point? The narrator of the book is saying, my purposes in this recounting have come to an end. This narrator in Ecclesiastes gives us the words of the one he calls the preacher, Koheleth, the assembler, one whom I believe was a godly sage and realist. Likely Solomon, we're told in verse 9, besides being wise... The preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So we've got an 11 and a half chapters of the preacher's word and then the narrator's voice who surrounds the two, and it may even be the same man. But what he tells us is that in them you will find words of delight and words of truth. There's many people who approach Ecclesiastes as if it's unorthodox. But I think that the translation is right here at the end of the book, that the inspired author is saying there's something to gain here. In it you'll see words of joy, words of truth, that wrestle with this hard and broken world that we live in. And here's the conclusion that you're supposed to gain from it. Verse 13, here it is, the end of it all. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fearing and following the one who created all things from him, the one who sustains all things through him, and the one to whom everything exists. That one, fear him. So I want to break up this sermon into three parts and I want to go in reverse order in the passage. Why we must fear. Whom we must fear. And what exactly do we mean by fear the Lord? Why we must fear. Look with me at verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fearing and following God in the present is no light matter because how we engage God now will have an impact on our tomorrow. God has established a day, the text says, when there will be a reckoning, when he will, as Paul declares, judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, Romans 2.16. 
Jesus said, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Matthew 12, 36. Every evil jibe, every bit of gossip, every harsh use of language, every complaint, every curse, every lie, God knows them all. And he will account for them. Jesus said the Son of Man is going to come with the angels in glory, in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus said that. We're not talking about a legalist who's declaring things. No, Jesus said your deeds today matter and God will hold you account. Or here's Paul. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due him for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, some of you might be wondering, how does that future judgment according to works then relate to what Jesus has already accomplished for us? And it's very important to recognize that that future judgment that they're talking about, which is in accordance with deeds, is not in any way the ground or foundation upon which our future inheritance is given. No, the future inheritance is grounded solely in Christ's justifying act, his blood, his righteousness. That's how we enjoy right standing with God. And yet, and yet, our own deeds that we're engaged in today supply necessary proof of our life in Christ and they also secure our reward. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 11 through 15. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. You can't replace that foundation. And there's no other one upon which to stand. Now, if anyone builds on top of that foundation with gold or, or silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day that is the day of the Lord, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So don't waste your life. Don't waste your moments. Don't waste your opportunities to engage your spouse, your roommates with deeds and thoughts and acts that will last through the fire. The Lord will account for every outward act, every secret thought, every response, every feeling, whether good or whether evil. It still matters. The preacher says in Chapter 3, 17. God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Far too often in this life, in the place of righteousness, there is wickedness. And those who are pursuing God have bad things done to them, whereas the rebels have good things done to them. And yet the preacher is convinced in this. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life in the present... 
Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear the Lord because they fear him. But it will not, it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow. The wicked might have success now, but it will not last into eternity. Why? Because he does not fear God. Chapter 8, 12 and 13. Fearing God today gives hope of eternal life tomorrow. True God-fearers are also free to delight in the world that we live in today. But we must be ever mindful that judgment is around the corner. Listen to the preacher. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your, your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Remember, the heart of the wise is, is prone toward the right. That rightward heart You have free to to move it and let it cheer you. Pursue what's in front of your eyes and yet keep this in mind. Know that for all these things, every act, every thought, God will bring it into judgment. Is Ecclesiastes 11 verse 9. The New Testament regularly warns how seriously God takes sin. And it uses these warnings to motivate you and I. They're not hypothetical. They're real. And they're designed to change us, to awaken new feelings, new emotions of concern and and awe of our God that moves us not to flee from Him and go our own way in sin, but rather compels us deeper in and higher up to follow Him more nearly. I just want to read a handful of these warnings And I just pray that they'll wash over us, awakening the fear of the Lord. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Matthew 6.29 If you do not forgive others, their trespass, know this, neither will your Father in heaven forgive yours. Matthew 6.15 If we endure, we will reign with Him. But if we deny Him, He will deny us. 2 Timothy 2.12 If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, This morning, if you leave this place and have a mindset that says a little bit of sin is okay, oh, guard yourself. If you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, listen to the author of Hebrews, there no longer remains for you a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume God's adversaries. Don't take sin lightly. God doesn't take sin lightly. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. So hear me. There's a balance here. Jesus died in order to cleanse us from our sins and to give us right standing with God. There is now, therefore, no condemnation, Romans 8.1. But that's not the only reason Jesus died. He also died to free us from the power of sin. 
If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then and only then will you live. Romans 8, 13. This isn't about perfectionism. None of us are perfect. Paul wasn't, and that was a helpful note for us. But it is truly about a new redirection over a lifetime. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, it could even be some in this room, Lord, Lord, not everyone will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, Matthew seven twenty one. So I just say with Paul, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and he means it. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. But then he added, and such were some of you, but you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You have been justified by the name of the Lord Jesus and by the work of the Spirit of God. We fear God because He does and will take sin seriously. We fear God. Chapter 12, 13 says, It's the whole duty of mankind, fearing and following God. Elohim is used 40 times in this book. In the 12 chapters, 40 times, Yahweh is never used. It's always God. And then we get two distinct designations. In chapter 12, verse 1, he's called the Creator. This God, 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 40 times, is the Creator. And then in chapter 12, verse 11, he's the Shepherd the one shepherd from whom all wisdom comes. The preacher just goes out of his way to identify the bigness, the greatness of this God that we are called to fear and that we're called to follow. He is the creator and he is the just judge who has cursed the world and who will judge the world. So turn with me now just back a page to 11 verse 5. Chapter 11, verse 5. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so it is that you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Everything. This particular verb form is imperfective, meaning that God is being portrayed here as one who is making, not who made or who will make, but as the God who is making in space and time all of reality. You remember the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 3, the Son of the living God right now is upholding all things, moment by moment, every particle, 
Every spray of water, every snowflake, every breath, upholding all things by the word of his power. What that means is if this God, who's over all things, who is making right now, moment by moment, if he stops speaking, this pulpit, this preacher, those pews, you people will stop existing. That is big God theology. There is nothing smaller, sorry, nothing bigger, nothing greater. Everything else is smaller. This is the God that we are called to fear. Within Ecclesiastes, everything, everything relates to all of life, every matter, every activity that happens in space and time. The rising of the sun, the blowing of the wind, the flowing of the water in chapter 1 is part of the everything. In chapter 3, we learn that there is a season for everything. And God makes everything. Like what? Well, there is a time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build. Our weeping and laughing, our mourning and dancing, seeking and losing, keeping and casting, tearing and sowing, loving and hating, warring and making peace, all are part of the everything that God makes. How big is the God you believe in? I mean, really. Do you affirm what Paul says that he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything? Or do you believe that from him and through him and to him are all things? I mean, all things? Everything. In fearing God, we're fearing the one who is the fountainhead of reality. And I hope you can begin to feel a little bit small. Because we're not just talking about breath and food and vehicles. We're talking about desires and longings. Troubles and pains. successes and failures, everything, everything. Do you fear this God? Do you want to flee from this kind of a God? Or are you compelled deeper in and higher up to follow? Look with me at chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Pleasure, pain. When the Vikings win, rejoice. When the faucet leaks or when you lose your job or when the relationship breaks or the cancer strikes or the child dies, remember 
There is no random pain or pleasure in this world. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Exodus 4.11 See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill, I make alive, I'm the one who wounds, and I'm the one who heals, and no one can deliver out of my hand. Deuteronomy 32.39 Isaiah 45.7 I'm the one who forms light, and I am the one who creates darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Do you fear God today? Do you recognize how dependent your tomorrows are, your successes, your making it into eternity is dependent on Him, not on you? Every bit of faithfulness, every bit of surrender, every bit of success, it's going to be dependent on Him. We are a dependent people. Fear this God. Fear Him. Seven fourteen says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider that this God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This inspired writer believes in the absolute, absolute, complete sovereignty of God over pleasure and over pain. And he also is convinced that God is working this world in a way that actually highlights our limited understanding. He's putting us in a position where we recognize, I don't know what tomorrow brings. That's how James talked. You don't know what tomorrow will bring, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. If the Lord wills, we will finish out this semester. If the Lord wills, my baby will survive. If the Lord wills, I will defeat my battle with lust. If the Lord wills, I will keep trusting Him and seeking Him. Oh God, will it today? Will it in me? Will it in these people that we would seek after you? And as we seek you, let us find you. You take pleasure in those who fear you, in those who hope in your steadfast love. We know why we should fear. We better get a grasp of whom we are called to fear. So what does it mean to fear our God? I hope you've felt a little bit of it. I did in preparing this message a little bit of, the, of what it means. Here, here's a definition that I'm drawing together from what we've seen so far. What is the fear of the Lord? It is a necessary and appropriate feeling of concern or awe before God that leads to wise living. The fear of the Lord is a necessary and appropriate feeling of concern or awe before God that leads to wise living. 
What induces this kind of fear? Well, it's recognizing God's incomparable greatness and believing that all of our future well-being as sinners is fully dependent on his mercy to both declare us righteous and to empower us to follow him. We've seen how the preacher brings together fear and wisdom, which together contrast with wickedness and sin. Now note that in 720 it tells us the righteous are not sinless people. No, there is not a righteous man on earth who does, not, who does good and never sins. Rather, the righteous people are those who fear God and who are committed to follow Him. Not perfectly, but progressively whose disposition is not toward the left, but toward the right. Fearing God opens the door for future well-being, we were told. It's, it's going to go well for those who fear me, and wisdom preserves the life of those who has it. But it will not be well with the wicked, because they don't fear God. Last text in Ecclesiastes. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes 3, 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor can anything be taken from it. God has done it so that people fear. See that end, that end statement, that end goal, that telic, complete, this is where I'm taking you. In my activities, in space and time, whether working what is good or what is bad, making straight or what is crooked, one of God's revealed goals is that those who are living in this world might fear Him. That it might awaken, generate this necessary and appropriate feeling of concern or awe before God in a way that leads to wise living. By fearing God, just look at that verse, verse 14, by fearing God, what we're doing is recognizing and celebrating that the level of His greatness means that His actions, which include everything, are permanent, complete, and secure. Do you see those three in that verse? They endure, they need no additions, and they cannot be altered. What is fear? Fear is a humble submission to the bigness of God. whose purposes can never be thwarted. But now we come to hope. Why would God create a world that highlights our limited status, our limited ability, that includes not only pleasures but pains, who's actually determining, it says in the book, who will actually be able to enjoy what he gives and who will not ever grow content? He's the one who's awakening the righteous and spurning the wicked. This kind of God, why would he create a world where he orchestrates all of reality in order that you and I might fear him? Why? Well, it's not only because he's worthy of our awe. It's more than that. God's glory is never separated from his love. Why would he work a world that forces us into a context of feeling fear? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. 
because it's only those who fear God for whom it will go well. God opposes proud people, but he gives grace to humble people. He puts us in context where, where we have two choices, to flee and say, I want nothing to do with this God, or to recognize our utter smallness and be drawn in and say, I need more of you. If he is the source of all things, what that means is that he is the source of all beauty, the source of all hope, and the source of all help. Will you come to me? I will be made great and you will receive love. The psalmist reflected, The Lord covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. He is the one who gives them all these things, this great and awesome and glorious God whose purposes cannot be thwarted. Then the psalmist said, This God's delight is not at all in the strength of the horse, nor is his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. The more that we, 12.1, remember our Creator and all that that means, moment by moment by moment, everything today, what was and what will be, dependent fully on His sustaining ultimate power and voice. The more we remember our Creator, grasping properly the object of our fear, the more we will understand actually what it means to fear Him. In conclusion... You'll recall Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13. Brothers and sisters, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. Why should I work it out with fear and trembling? For it is God who works in you. God who makes everything. God works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul believed that God makes everything. And so every work of faith for Paul was a thanks be to God kind of obedience. Romans 6.17 We're still to work out our salvation, but we do so with fear, knowing that apart from God and Christ, we can do nothing. John 15.5 Everything will come by grace so that in everything he gets the glory and we do not. Here's Paul. We struggle with all his energy that he powerfully works within us. Colossians 1.29 or 1 Corinthians 15.10 By his grace I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. I worked harder than all of them. But it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. God's grace did not make Paul's work unnecessary. God's grace made Paul's work possible. Feel the dependence, the neediness, and run to it. God is there, and he is moving you that it might go well with you in the future. This is about love. Your limitedness, my weakness, is about love. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. 
Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, knowing that our God is a consuming fire. Brothers and sisters, fear God and keep his commandments in the strength that he supplies for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The word of the Lord. Go in peace.